Thank you very much. We're going to tag team a little bit today and, and dispense with our usual uh, recap because of time. Um, I know it's a holiday weekend. I'm sure there are a lot of visitors here, but since I'm up front, I get to acknowledge my visitors. That's the way that it works. But I know that uh, some of you are longtime Otter Creek folks, and I just don't want to miss the opportunity to tell you that the rest of my family is here. My brother Barry is here, uh, not here very often. His wife, Sydney, his kids, Matthew Mitchell and Skyler, down from Chicago. Barry's here to fact check and make sure we're telling the truth. He has a, he has a lot of experience as well with the stuff that we're talking about. And then our oldest son, Jonathan, is here from Virginia. Uh, he also has traveled extensively in Israel and Palestine. And so we took up the whole front row, but it's, it's great to have them. I'm glad that they're, uh, they're all here today. Um, the events of the last week or two, I, I hope, highlight for all of us the relevance of this conversation. Uh, you know, even as we talk, there are things happening in Israel and Palestine, stabbings and shootings and bombings, and uh, the, the, the conflict continues. It escalates. What's happening in Turkey reminds all of us about how interconnected the Middle East is and how relevant this story is to what's going on in our world. So we're going to jump in and race through the first intifada, the Oslo Peace Accords, the second intifada, and see how far we get. Great. Welcome back, everybody. Another good turnout. Happy everybody's here. Uh, just to tell you real quick how we're going to do this, again, as he said, first to second intifada today, which we were supposed to have gotten done last week, but I you know, did a whole class period on two years of the conflict, so we were a little behind schedule. Uh, next week, then, we're going to have two back-to-back -back weeks of talking about the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about this? Did God give the land to the Jews? Did God give the land to the Jews forever? What does language of forever mean? How should we read the scriptures around this? So uh, my uncle Rob will be here. Uh, I won't be here next, next week, but Rob and my dad will do that. And in the following week, Rob and I will do that. So you'll get two back-to-back -back weeks of Bible stuff. So do stick around for that. Today, we're going to dive back into or dive into the first intifada, which is where we left off last time. Now, if you remember, I talked about the first intifada only briefly to say that it happened and it was an uprising, essentially. That the word intifada uh, means in Arabic, shaking off. It refers to the shaking off of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. So it begins in 1987 after, remember the slide I showed you, of about 20 years of growing tension after the Six-Day War in 1967. You had, uh, you had the rise of Palestinian terrorism in 1968 to 74, really. You had things like airplane hijackings. You had things like uh, the Munich um, uh, hostage situation. You had the uh, massacre in the Tel Aviv airport. Um, you had the Yom Kippur War. You had the war in Lebanon. A lot of different things escalating over that 20-year period. It all leads up to finally a kind of a unified Palestinian revolution. Starts in 1987 and officially ends in 1993. And we'll talk about why it ends in a minute. During this period, you also have the birth of Hamas in 1988. I really probably don't have to describe Hamas. I'm sure everyone knows about it. Most people probably think of Hamas when they think of Palestinians. And you probably associate uh, Palestinian resistance more with Hamas and more with what we'll see in the second intifada than the first intifada. There are a lot of misconceptions about what the first intifada is like. We, I think many of us probably, when we think of intifadas, we think of suicide bombings, we think of terrorism, we think of these kind of acts. But the first intifada was actually quite different than the second. And I want to look at why, why it was different. We're going to skip this Hamas charter, actually. <clears throat> uh, oh, yeah, but before I do that, I wanted to tell you a couple of things happened during the first intifada that are really significant. In November of 1988, the Palestinian National Council gets together and they agree to a few really important things. One, they agree to recognize Israel's existence. Now, 
What you'll hear some people say is the Palestinians have never recognized uh, Israel's right to exist. Now that, I would argue, is technically true. They've never recognized the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish state, right? But they have recognized that it does in fact exist. You start seeing more now at this time, language moving from resistance of the Zionist regime, the Zionist entity, the Zionist program, to talking about Israel. They'll begin to use the language of Israel more because they've recognized that it does in fact exist, whether they want it to or not. Okay? But, to my knowledge, they still have never said that the Israel as a Jewish state has a right to exist. Am I right about that? Important distinction. The Palestinian Authority, uh, led by the PLO, has recognized Israel's right to exist, its existence, yeah. but not its existence as a Jewish state. And that's still a very, very important uh, touch point in this whole conversation, even internationally, as we'll talk about later. How can you be a Jewish state and be a democracy mm-hmm. who are in conflict with each other, um, but they don't recognize Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state? And part of the reason why they wouldn't recognize that is because 20% of Israel's population are Palestinians. They're Palestinian Arabs, uh, who then, if they live in a Jewish state, essentially by definition won't have the same rights, um, whether on paper or in practice, of the Jews who live there. So the Palestinians would say, you don't have the right to exist as a Jewish state. So, they recognize Israel's existence. They also accept all UN resolutions since 1947. Remember, up to this point, they've pretty much rejected all of them said we're not on board with any of these because none of them allow for a Palestinian state. Uh, Israel's rejected some of them. Uh, we don't have, you know, they, they've never been enforced, so we're, we're not going to agree to any of these. In 1988, they changed their tune. Up until this point, this is significant, especially with this next point. Remember, up until this point, the Palestinian resistance has essentially been an attempt to undo what happened in 1948. 1948, uh, well, in 1947, the land was partitioned by the UN. In 1948, a war is fought in order to cement that. And ever since then, over the next 40 years, Palestinians have been trying to reverse that process. Remember the Palestinian National Charter of 68 that said, Palestine, as it was under the British mandate, is an indivisible unit. It is illegal to divide this land. We do not recognize the right of of the United Nations to have divided this land. We want all of Palestine, as it was back in the British mandate, all stays together. They change now. This is, where, this is where the strategy changes. And they forswear their claim to, to the British mandate. So they've essentially then forsworn their claim to 78% of the land. This is significant, very significant. Until this point, they want 100% of the land. And now in 1988, the Palestinian National Council says, we, are, we will agree to give up claim to 78% of the land. What we'll take then is Gaza and the West Bank as our state, 22% of the land, okay? And they proclaim the establishment of the state of Palestine with East Jerusalem as their capital. Now, the United States does not recognize this within 11 minutes as it did the, the uh, Declaration of Independence by the State of Israel. In fact, to my knowledge, the United States has never agreed. The UN has since recognized uh, Palestine as a state, the state of Palestine, I think, in 2012, and the Vatican last year. Uh, there may be a handful of other states, but those are the most significant entities, I think. But do note that this is a very significant turning point in Palestinian strategy. We're no longer trying to undo 48. We now will take a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. We'll accept 22% of the land instead of our claim for 100%. Now, many of us probably have never heard that they actually did this. <laughs> I'm seeing some shaking of heads, so you, you're agreeing with me. So let's look at what happened in the first intifada. First, yeah. I want to just say something quick about Hamas. We didn't really talk about this, but, but I think it's important as we move forward. Hamas is an acronym for the Islamic resistance movement. It's, it's the Arabic words that, uh, the, the letters from, from the words of the Islamic resistance movement. Hamas started out the Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza 
which at the time was a non-military, political, more conservative um, expression of, of Palestinian nationalism. Um, we've all heard that Israel started Hamas. It's probably not completely true, but Israel certainly supported this, the, the beginning of Hamas as an alternative to uh, the PLO um, and their approach to Palestinian uh, uh, nationalism. Of course, Hamas has gone astray in the eyes of the Israelis from what they, what they anticipated, and that's not un unlike what the United States has done by supporting various military regimes around the world that we thought advanced our own political interests. Well, that's what happened with Hamas. Hamas had three branches, a civil or social branch, charitable, a military wing, and a uh, religious wing. Um, and so they were very involved from the beginning with charitable activities with the uh, more conservative expression of, of Islam, as well as with a military wing that was going to fight for uh, the liberation of Palestine. So that's why they were called the Islamic Resistance Movement. They were resisting the occupation. They have not adopted the charter that Michael showed, the Palestinian National Charter. Hamas still does not recognize uh, the existence of the State of Israel. And we'll talk later about that and the significance of it. But I think what's important to recognize, and I'll stop with this, is the Hamas Charter still acknowledges Palestinian sovereignty over the entire land. So does the Charter of Likud. Likud is the is the national party of Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister. They are the more conservative of the parties. Their charter expressly calls for Jewish sovereignty over the entire land, no recognition of Palestinian sovereignty over any portion of the land. That is still in the charter of the Likud movement. It's no different than the charter of the Hamas movement. And again, it's something that's lost on us in the United States, that their prime minister of the state of Israel is a part of a political party that in its charter denies any sovereignty over any portion of the land of the Palestinian people. It's not entirely dissimilar to what Hamas has done. Yeah. You said it's no different. Is it no different or is it completely different? In what way is it completely different? Did, did I understand you to say that, that Hamas says it's all Palestinian and the Israeli says it's all Israeli? Yes. Okay, so, yes. It's, so it's 180 I'm degrees. sorry, yeah, it's, it's okay. no different in the principle, right. but very different in the acting out. Very yeah. good point. Thank you. Yep. I, I threw this other. These were a few quotes from the Hamas charter that Hamas believes the land of Palestine has been an Islamic region essentially throughout the generations and until forever no one can renounce a part of it. Hamas regards nationalism as part and parcel of the religious faith. Nothing is loftier or deeper in nationalism than waging jihad against the enemy and confronting him when he sets foot on the land of Muslims. It is a truth not to be questioned. Renouncing any part of Palestine means renouncing part of the religion. Now, when we teach this in undergrad, uh, we won't do it here because I'm pretty sure we would take up the next 10 weeks on this, but it does raise some interesting questions for us about our own um, nationalistic feelings and how we connect those to our religious faiths and what are our truths not to be questioned. Because I would assume that we read this and think, oh my goodness, that is not acceptable. You cannot say that, you know, nationalism is part and parcel of the religious faith and it's a truth not to be questioned. Oh my goodness, that's just ridiculous. But I dare say that we probably all have those same things within us. Many of us probably have a nationalistic expression of our Christian faith and many of us probably have truths that are not to be questioned. So I would just invite that on your own time to reflect on in what ways do, can, do we express our faith and our patriotism, especially on this July 4th weekend, our nationalism in a way that is different from Hamas. We're not going to talk about it now. Just think about it. All right. I love when I get to do that. Say controversial things and then run. Uh, <laughs> it's my favorite. So um, looking at the unified uh, national command of the Intifada. So the Intifada begins really at the end of 87. 
And in February of 88, there's a document that's kind of, that's put out there as a unified expression of what we are doing in the Intifada. It's one of the ways that the first Intifada and the second Intifada are very different. The first is a cohesive, unified movement by the Palestinians. The second is not. The first emerges in a lot of ways out of uh, Israeli prisons. A lot of Palestinians who were arrested due to their resistance began to form this kind of education system much the same way that Mandela and others formed it on Robben Island in South Africa. And they begin educating out of prison uh, and they begin orchestrating this unified national uh, not, uh, unarmed resistance to the Israeli occupation from prison. And here's some of the things that they put out. That the <coughs> Intifada will be general civil disobedience, which means boycotting all enemy organs, boycotting the enemy economically and not paying taxes. We want to deal a strong blow to the enemy, its economy, and its plunder of our people's wealth and resources. It calls on all our workers to stop work immediately in the Israeli settlements. Calls on all our workers to abide by the days of the general strike and be prepared to declare a go-slow strike for a few days in all Israeli places and institutions. It calls on their people to abstain from paying taxes, abstain from paying exorbitant and unfair fines, boycott the Israeli goods in the markets and use national goods instead. And then to top it off at the end, let the stones of the uprising and the Molotov cocktails pour down on the heads of the Israeli occupation soldiers. So, some will say that the First Intifada was a nonviolent movement. There's a fantastic book by Mary Elizabeth King called A Quiet Revolution, which is a, a thorough documentation of, the, of what she would call the nonviolent revolution of the Palestinians. I prefer to talk about an unarmed revolution. We could, we could debate as to whether or not throwing stones or Molotov cocktails at uh, tanks and at armored soldiers is an act of violence or not. But I think it's safer to say that it is an unarmed resistance. They do not have the same kind of arms that the Israelis have, but they are participating in acts that some would call violent here. But the primary focus of this intifada, hopefully you can see, is it is to cripple Israel economically. That's how they're going to beat them, right? It is, a, it is about not paying taxes, going slow at work, striking from your work, refusing to pay un, you know, unfair fines and taxes. Just cripple the Israeli economy so that they realize they have no other choice if they're going to survive than to listen to our demands. And lo and behold, uh, it ends up working because it brings about the Oslo Accords. So after six years of this, five years I guess, in 1993, um, Bill Clinton facilitates the signing of the Oslo Accords between Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat, which Dad will talk about in a second. But I do want to also point out that you'll notice that this, this approach is a complete step away from their earlier approach. Remember the 68 Charter, armed struggle is the only way to liberate Palestine, thus it is the overall strategy. After about 30 years of trying that, 20 years of trying that, they realized it was not going to work. Israel was too powerful, it was backed by the United States, they were not going to beat them through armed struggle. So they changed their tactics, they pursued an unarmed revolution to take down Israel through economic means and slow their economy down, and that actually did work. It brought Israel to the table and it resulted in the Oslo Accords, which ended up being an utter failure, but it did bring about the Oslo Accords and, and what seemed to be the best chance we've, you know, for peace. We have finally figured out peace in Israel and Palestine. So I'm going to let Dad take over here and talk about the Oslo Accords and then I'll come back and talk about the Second Intifada. Yeah. We're recording, so we're going to pass this mic back and forth. So just a, a quick word, each of these segments of history, as you know, could take a long time to talk about in detail, uh, and there are others who are much more expert on, on this than I am, but I want to just tell you a little bit about what happened at Oslo, because understanding Oslo is pivotal 
to understanding what's happening right now in Israel and Palestine as we move forward and talk about the consequences of this failed peace agreement it's important that you understand the nuts and bolts of it so the first intifada as Michael said led to um, a peace accord and what everyone hoped would be uh, a, a uh, exciting future all of us felt that all of us felt this sense of hope uh, when um, Israel and Palestine came together shook hands on the White House lawn and said that we've that we've achieved, achieved peace. Not everyone in the world felt that. And one of my movements during this uh, story was to discover the works of Edward Said uh, around 2000, 2001. Edward Said is the most famous of the Palestinian refugees. Uh, his family left Israel in 1948 uh, when it became the state of Israel. Edward Said went on to uh, acclaim as a professor of, of English literature um, in New York at Columbia. Uh, published many, many books, both about English literature as well as about the Palestinian uh, struggle. And one of his books is called Peace and Its Discontents. Uh, and that was the first of Edward Said's books that I discovered and read in 2001, 2002. And he was reacting to Oslo as one of those who said, this is a failed agreement from the beginning. We have lost a hope of peace. By Oslo, we can see the future and we can tell that there will never be peace as a result of what's happened. That basically Arafat has signed away the, the, the hope of the Palestinian people. And I think that's, uh, in essence, what's happened. So this um, peace accord met with opposition on both sides. On the right wing, Israeli leaders were rejecting it, although in general, the Israeli people were supportive because they want peace. Even to this day, many, um, many to most Israelis want peace. They want justice. Most Palestinians do as well. The question is, how do we get there? Palestinians in general were somewhat skeptical. Uh, they hoped for peace, but there was no recognition in Oslo of statehood or independence. There was no uh, guarantee that the settlement uh, pr uh, process would, uh, would stop or be retreated, and we'll talk about that later. No commitment to improve human rights, no resolution of the refugee status, no discussion of Jerusalem, um, and basically they were saying we will give up the Intifada if we give up 78% of historic Palestine. So what the Palestinians were looking at was Oslo did not answer the five final status issues, and we'll talk about those later. Those are still on the table. Those are the sticking point. Oslo basically said, in five years, there will be a Palestinian state, and we'll figure out how that's going to work down the road. And that's still where we are all of these years after 1993. All of the peace discussions, whether it's Bush's initiative or Kerry or any peace initiative, is all about how are we going to talk about who gets to come to the table to talk about the final status issues. There is, there is no discussion at, at this point of the five final status issues that have to be resolved. And Michael will put those up for us to look at. So Oslo 1 was 93, Oslo 2, 94, 95. And this is where things got complicated. Oslo 2 divided Palestine what's left of it, the 22% that's left, the West Bank and Gaza, into three sections, A, B, and C. So here's what Oslo 1 decided. The first Oslo Accord said that the Palestinians would have sovereignty over Gaza and over Jericho. They're separated by the State of Israel and the West Bank. <laughs> you can see the blue here. These are the settlements, the Israeli settlements that were in the Gaza Strip. There are settlements in the West Bank as well. But many of us will remember when Yasser Arafat flew in triumphantly into the airport at Gaza, an airport that no longer exists, it's been bombed numerous times by Israel, but flew into Gaza saying, I'm home from exile, we now have a Palestinian authority, I'm, gonna, I'm the president, we're going to have a nation. But it was Gaza and Jericho. And basically that's what the Palestinian Authority was given uh, as the first stage of a, a future nation. 
Oslo II then divided the West Bank up into three segments, A, B, and C. This is extremely complicated. I'm just going to run over it quickly. We're going to come back to it. When I travel with my group every year for a month, it takes us the entire month of living this experience for the residents and students to finally say, okay, are we in area A, B now, or B, or C? Tell me the difference. We talk about it daily for a month. It's very complicated. But basically, what you'll see here, the green line, the internationally recognized border, the 1949 armistice line, in the, let's start with the orange, areas. These are the uh, palette. Yeah, okay, sorry. So you can see these orange areas. These are the Palestinian municipalities. These are the cities. So you have Janin, Tulkarim, Kalkilia, Nablus, Ramallah, Jericho, Bethlehem, Hebron, the major Palestinian cities. These are area A. Under area A, the Palestinian Authority was given sovereignty over security issues and all civil issues. So they're responsible for water, for um, housing, for education, for health care, for electricity, all the things that a civil government is usually responsible for. They also were given permission to be armed and to have a security force. So they're responsible for the police uh, services of the community. So Note there, it's a security for police force, not a military. Yes. Palestine not has no military, and Israel, I would assume, will never allow it to have a military. It's, a, it's just a police force. And so while they are armed with automatic weapons, they do not have... Um, artillery tanks, the things that a police force has, and they're there only for civil control of the population. And the security agreement with Israel is that whenever the Israeli military wants to go into Area A, they wire, they telephone in, they radio in, and the Palestinian security forces disappear. They go underground, undercover, they have to disappear from sight so that when the Israeli military comes in, there is no armed Palestinian presence in the city. That's Area A. Area B, I'm sorry, I should use this, is the, the light tan area. Those are the rural areas surrounding Area A. Those are the major villages and population centers around Area A. In Area B, the Palestinians have civil responsibility for health care, education, water, etc., although they can't control all of those things, but they cannot have any security presence. So all of the police functions in Area B are done by the Israeli military occupation forces. And remember, there's no civil Israeli government over the West Bank. It's a military governor, and it's run by a military court. Area C, which is about 80% of the West Bank, is all of this area in green or gray. In Area C, the Palestinian Authority has no control. Under Oslo, they were given responsibility for health care, but they're not allowed to build any health care facilities. They're not allowed to have sovereignty over the area. They're supposed to provide health care for the citizens. But everything else in Area C, all municipal activities and all security is run by the Israeli military. So that's the West Bank. and That's what was offered as the future of a Palestinian state. So 1995, Oslo II says in five years there will be an independent Palestinian state with sovereignty over Area A and B and over the Gaza Strip. Total disaster. An absolute total disaster. There was no way that this was ever going to result in any sort of an independent sovereign nation that had identifiable borders and a contiguous land mass. This is why Edward Said and so many prominent Palestinians, even some of those who negotiated Oslo, walked away and said, Arafat has signed away our future. There's no way that this was ever going to result in a peace agreement. And so here we are 20 years later, this still exists. 
and it's been written into law, it's been formalized by all of the checkpoints, and we'll show you in a couple of weeks a map of all of the checkpoints, the apartheid roads, the separate roads, the wall, all of the things that have made this basically a permanent representation. So why, why Area C? Why does it look like this? Well, you've got the whole Jordan Valley, which has strategic importance and militarily, and the water, all of the Jordan River, so they've kept control of the Jordan Valley, and they've kept control of all of this area because it allows the settlements to be contiguous with the state of Israel. So you can see here in 1995, these little blue um, triangles, these are the major settlements that were in the West Bank at that time. There's been an explosion since Oslo in terms of the settlement activity. There are now some 600 to 700,000 settlers living in the West Bank, the majority of those in a ring around Jerusalem. But the reason that Israel kept control of all of this is so that they would have a network of roads that would allow all of these settlers to have access back to the state of Israel. So very important to recognize. So here's uh, where we are in 2000. Um, you can see the, uh, the, the start of the settlement activity. I'm sorry, this is 1995. By 2000, five years later, look at all of these blue dots. Within five years, an explosion of the settlement activity that has continued. So again, here's the armistice line. In uh, red here are area A and B together. The white is area C. All of the blue are Israeli settlements, cities, villages, encampments spread throughout the West Bank. Yes, sir? What's the political point behind the settlements? I mean, is, is, is there a political purpose? Are we talking regentrification? I mean, what's, what's the story of the settlement? Two, the, the basic political purpose is it's, it's occupa occupation of the land. It's colonization. So in 1967, when Israel conquered the West Bank, they immediately moved in settlers to Hebron and to Elon Moray outside of Nablus. Those were the most radical Zionist, religious and political settlers, who basically said, this is biblical Judea and Samaria, we now control it, we're going to inhabit the land. So they moved into the strategic hilltops and began to inhabit it. So it's an ongoing process of colonization. It's a recognition that as the facts on the ground change, the chance for for a sovereign uh, Palestinian state goes away. Okay. You now have, 20 years later, 600,000 Israelis living here that have to be dealt with. It's what President Bush called the facts on the ground. Any future agreement has to recognize that you have 600,000 Israelis living throughout the West Bank. And so the settlers, the, the people in those settlements would be highly politicized just based on that's the kind of people that go there. Most of them are. In general, there's two categories. We'll talk more about the settlements a little bit later. There's two categories of settlers. There are those who are the Zionist settlers, either religious or political, and then the economic settlers who have moved in because they can own property in the settlements at a, a, a fraction of what it costs to live in Israel because it's so heavily subsidized by the Israeli government and I would say by the American evangelical community who has supported this. So there are tax breaks and incentives that allow Israelis to move into these settlements. Many of the settlers would leave if those tax breaks were removed, but all of the, the radical Zionist religious and political settlers would not leave. Especially down in Hebron in the south, and uh, for those who got my book, you'll remember those are the stories where that, um, that's the place where those stories take place. And in a few weeks, maybe four or five, I'll probably do uh, nearly an entire class on some of those stories and pictures of what Hebron's like and what it's like to live among some of those more radical settlers. And this has been in the news this week. There was a stabbing uh, in Kiryat Arba, uh, and Israel has, has closed off he uh, all of Hebron, basically, and, and put it under, under um, uh, military rule again, uh, at curfews, and, uh, so, and we can talk more about that later. So I'm going to close with this slide just to give you, again, a sense about A. So Area A 
is 18% of the West Bank. Remember, the West Bank and Gaza are 22% of historic Palestine. Area A is 18% of that 22%. That's where the Palestinian Authority has civil and security responsibility. Area B is mostly rural. That's 22% of the West Bank. Israel has all security control, and the Palestinian Authority is responsible for all civil matters. 90% of the Palestinian population, 2.5 million people, live in Area A or B. Area C is 62% of that 22% of historic Palestine. Israel has security in all land-related civil matters under its control, under the civil administration, a branch of the military government. And the Palestinian Authority is responsible for education and medical services. But Israel controls the permits for all infrastructure building. So if you go into a village in Area C, um, the Palestinians can't just build a clinic, they certainly can't build a hospital. All of that is controlled by the Israeli military, but they're responsible for the provision of health care. So basically, the health care in Area C is provided by NGOs, by nonprofits who, are, who are go into that area because the Palestinian Authority can't do much, even though under Oslo they're responsible for health care. There's 180,000 Palestinians who live in Area C. So you've got 165 islands or Bantustans of areas A and B, whereas Area C is fully contiguous so that it can be brought into uh, Israel. Almost all of the land reserves, all of the land that's available for future expansion in the West Bank is under the control of Israel in Area C. Area A and B is, is basically filled out. So there's no place for the Palestinians to grow as a people. They can't build in Area C because it's under the control of the Israeli military. Great, thank you. I'm gonna jump back to that slide. Um, I think so. Is it still going? Great. So, um, yeah, I do note a couple of things here. Uh, as he said, Palestinians are legally barred from building houses in the West Bank, in Area C for sure, maybe even Area B as well. Yeah, the, so you have to have permission from the Israeli government in order to build homes within the West Bank, within Palestinian territory. You still have to get permission. And the vast majority of the time, Israel does not grant those permits. So then Palestinians have to build houses illegally uh, and risk that that house could be torn down. But if they don't do that, they won't get to have a house. Lee, you have something? I was going to tell a very quick story of yep. an acquaintance of mine that would be in a situation <coughs> over there. I, I had dinner in his house one night. And a block away, another illegal, according to UN law, Israeli settlement was going up. He told me, he and his wife told me, that they had been trying for years just to get a building permit for a new house. They had paid six $7,000 just to get a permit and still have not gotten it yet. Yep. Thanks. If, if we get to it, I have a couple of slides of uh, images I'll show you of a house demolition that I went to uh, in February of 2012, uh, and I can tell you the story of that. Um, but also there's, and we'll talk about water, we'll talk more about it, but Israel also um, can destroy wells. I don't think uh, Palestinians are allowed to dig wells either without Israeli permission. And John actually has a story of, of some friends who came home from work one day and found their well destroyed and dug up essentially and the water rerouted from their home to a settlement nearby. Theft, stealing water. We'll talk more about that later. We're gonna keep going now and get into uh, what, how we get to the second intifada. So as you can see, as you may all be somewhat depressed at this point, which is appropriate when you're talking about this conflict. Um, after Oslo, we have all this division of the land that's just an absolute disaster. And tensions continue to rise because right after signing a peace accord, Israel increases their settlement population by 60,000 in the first three years. Sign a peace accord with your enemy <laughs> 
and then you further colonize their land 60,000 people within the next three years. They then also begin to construct these bypass or what we often call settler only roads that dad was mentioning that dissect the West Bank. So just to, this is an older map from 2006, but every road that you see here, um, all these purple roads, uh, these are roads that, are, uh, that Palestinians legally cannot use. They're in the West Bank, but they connect the settlements to each other and they connect the settlements to Palestine, sorry, to Israel. So Palestinians cannot use these roads. And they control that by the color of the license plates. If you have a Palestinian registered vehicle, you have a white license plate. If you have an Israeli registered vehicle, you have a yellow license plate. Yep. So the military can immediately look at the car and know if the car is registered as Palestinian or Israeli. And that's how they control who has access to the roads. So uh, a couple of years ago, I was teaching a class on forgiveness and reconciliation out at Riverbend Prison. And I had Naomi Tutu come out. She's the, one of the daughters of Desmond Tutu. Hopefully most folks know Desmond Tutu, Nobel Peace Prize winner, Archbishop Emeritus of, of uh, Cape Town, um, Chairman of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in, in South Africa. So she came out to talk about reconciliation in South Africa, and she ended up just sort of venturing into a reflection on Israel. And she said, unprompted by me, and I asked if I could quote her on it, and she said yes. She said that when she first went to Israel, she realized within a day that the South Africans were amateurs at apartheid compared to the Israelis. Desmond Tutu's daughter. South Africans were amateurs compared to the Israelis. And her primary uh, evidence for this were these roads. She said, never in South Africa would you have seen a road that black people could not use. Just wouldn't see it. You would see buildings that they weren't supposed to use, water fountains they couldn't use. You know, you're thinking Jim Crow, Jim Crow on steroids in South Africa. That just, she's like, you would never have seen a road that said black people barred from this road. Just wouldn't have happened. But it does happen in the West Bank, in the Palestinian land. That doesn't even exist in Israel. That's in the West Bank. Are they allowed to, are the Palestinians allowed to even walk on those roads, or they can't? Well, most of these are kind of highways, and they have walls on either side, and they go through tunnels, so it'd be very hard to walk on these roads. In Hebron, I'll show you um, a road within the city of Hebron that Palestinians are barred from, and they're not allowed to walk on that, uh, to step foot on that road, unless they're, except for one area where there's an Israeli checkpoint and a soldier monitoring it, and they can walk 15 feet across to go to their neighborhood, but only if there's a soldier watching them. There are many roads in the West Bank that both Israelis and Palestinians can use. Yep. There, there are, uh, Israelis have access to all of the roads, although some of them, may, you know, they venture on at their own risk, uh, and certainly they're not allowed to go into Area A under Israeli law. Uh, but this, the true settler-only roads it's a smaller proportion of the roads, and on those roads, the Palestinians cannot go. If we can hold, if we can hold any other questions, I have five minutes, and i got to get through this through second intifada. If we can take your question afterwards. Thank you so much. Um, so tensions continue to rise. September to December, 93 to 94, uh, death um, tolls are increasing. Then in February of 94, a, an American Jewish physician who uh, became a settler in Hebron goes into the Ibrahimi Mosque, one of the holiest places for... Um, uh, for Muslims in Hebron, and he opens up fire in the back of the, uh, the mosque and kills 27 people, injuring about 190. So there's this big massacre. It's followed then by suicide bombings, followed by the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, who's just signed the peace accord. Note, Yitzhak Rabin is killed by a settler, not a Palestinian. One of his own citizens kills him because he signed a peace accord. And it was, it was kill killed by a settler from Hebron, one of the more radical areas. So then the new prime minister orders the assassination of the Hamas leader who would mastermind these suicide attacks and there are six suicide bombings that fall in retaliation and the spiral is just escalating. Okay? So then, 
Ariel Sharon, uh, we're not going to talk about this much, he takes a thousand police, they walk on the Temple Mount, and a seeming uh, declaration of Israeli sovereignty over the Temple Mount uh, and over the Muslim sites, and so uh, the Second Intifada just explodes. So, approximately from September of 2000 to 2005, the Second Intifada exists, and here's the main point of it. It is marked by suicide bombing. We'll all remember this, almost assuredly. Right? But this is, again, very different from the First Intifada. They are not the same. The first is an unarmed, cohesive, unified revolution. The second is not. So suicide bombing start, really begins to, to take off. Their first bombing was really in 89. But you'll note here, eight bombings, 12 bombings. Then the start of the Second Intifada, 40 bombings, 47 bombings, 23 bombings, 468 fatalities. And then it starts dropping off. And we'll talk uh, in a few weeks about why it starts dropping off. Uh, there are various reasons for that. Most of us would assume it has to do with the wall, which is somewhat accurate, but also there, there are some nuances to that. But the suicide bombing drastically increases. Now, we do not want to run over this and pretend that this is not a significant issue. We have a friend, um, in fact, uh, there's, there's a, many of you may know, I don't know if I should say their name, the Shulams, can I, I guess I can talk about them, yeah. I guess I just said their name as I asked you <laughs> if I could say their name. <laughs> Anyway, so some of our friends, uh, the Shulams, uh, who many of you may know, they often, Joe Shulam often speaks at Summer Celebration, um, and uh, his wife was actually in a, a Jewish market there in Jerusalem when a suicide bomber <laughs> exploded. Uh, she was close enough that she has, I think, significant hearing damage, I believe, uh, from that. Um, and so we've had friends who are close to that. Dad, actually, just this last trip, was about 15 minutes in front of the bus that we probably all heard about that blew up in Jerusalem. Said he could see the smoke out of the back of, the, um, out of, the back of his, uh, the bus. And then he ended up actually speaking to someone that he knew who said that their cousin was, in fact, the bomber. Um, the family had no idea about it. <laughs> no idea at all. But there was that kind of connection. I also have sat down with uh, a man named Rami El-Hanan, who... Uh, whose father, grandfather survived Auschwitz, very famous family in Israel, and in 1996, uh, his 14-year-old daughter, Smidar, was out uh, with her friends in Jerusalem and was killed by a Palestinian suicide bomber. And to listen to his story was incredibly moving about what that grief is like, having to go to the morgue and identify your child. And the, the real terror that that is, because you think about what this is like, as, as a parent, I was listening to a podcast of an Israeli journalist who was talking about what it was like to be a parent during the Second Intifada, said, you know, my kids were between 10 and 18, and you can't imprison your children for years in your house, right? You can't just lock them up and tell them they can't go. But if your kids leave the house, where are they going to go? They're going to ride the public transportation. They're going to go the, to the disco halls at that time. They're going to go to the pizza parlors. They're going to go to the coffee shops. And where are the suicide bombers targeting? The buses, the pizza parlors, the coffee shops, the disco halls. So he was saying, for us as parents, we were left with this dilemma. Do we imprison our children or do we let them walk out of the house knowing that they may get blown up that day? That's terror, right? Absolute terror. And we don't want to. So, again, everything that we're saying also has this in mind. We are we are very aware of the terror of suicide bombing, of what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust. We're, we're aware of all of these things, but we want to try to hold both of these in tension with each other. So the suicide bombing significantly increased during this time. Now. I have two minutes. Let me see if I can get through these, these slides to leave you with. I want to raise uh, an issue about suicide bombing and its connection to Islamic fundamentalism and suggest for those who are interested a book that you need to read. It's called Cutting the Fuse, the Explosion of Suicide Terrorism and How to Stop It. It's written by two Chicago analysts, Robert Pape and James Feldman. And they look at every known suicide bombing attack 
from 1980 when they really start, uh, when they really begin, to when this book was published in 2009. They look at every single one they could find and then they drew some conclusions around about the, the pattern. Around the world, everywhere. Sri Lanka, Iraq, Palestine, Chechnya, anywhere. So here's what they came up with. This was their conclusion. The principal cause of suicide terrorism is resistance to foreign occupation, not Islamic fundamentalism, which functions mainly as a recruiting tool. They say the world leader in suicide bombing is actually the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, which are not Muslim. They're Hindu by affiliation to a degree, though they're avowedly anti-religious. But the world leader in suicide bombing, they're not, it's not even a Muslim group. Overall, again, this is, in, this is in 2009 when they published this book. Overall, they said, Islamic fundamentalism cannot, cannot account for over half the known affiliations of the total suicide terrorists from 1980 to 2003. Okay, note that. Over half of the known affiliations of suicide terrorists from 80 to 2003 cannot be connected to Islamic fundamentalism. That was about 345 total attacks over 24 years. So then your question might be, well, what about 2003-2009? Well, I'll jump to that. Last point was, they said that whereas Islamic fundamentalism can't account for over half, foreign occupation accounted for nearly all, 95%. In other words, the people who are committing suicide bombings generally are people who perceive the land that they feel is their home as being occupied by a foreign hostile army, a military. And then that's why they, they pursue this uh, form of resistance. Partly, you could, partly from perhaps a warped interpretation of certain scriptures, also because they do not have the same force of arms that the, their occupiers have. I've, I've talked to Palestinians who have said, of course we don't support suicide bombing, but I guarantee you if we had the same kind of fighter planes that the Israelis had, if we had tanks, if we had the M16s and the R15s, we wouldn't be blowing ourselves up. We don't have the same force of arms, so we have to resort to drastic measures. Because if we had, the, if it was really an equal war, we wouldn't be doing this. So, what about from 2004 to 2009? 1,800 attacks during that time. Five times more from 2004 to 2009 than in the previous 24 years. Absolute skyrocket. Here's what they say about that period. Foreign military occupation accounts for 98.5% and the deployment of American combat forces for 92% of all suicide terrorist attacks around the world in the past six years, from 2004 to 2009. And as an example of that, they say that Israeli forces left Lebanon in 2000 and there have been no suicide attacks, at least against Israeli forces, since then, even though Hezbollah is still a fundamentalist uh, Islamic organization. If this was about Islam, then that, and Hezbollah would have continued those attacks against Israel. But Israel was no longer in Lebanon, and so those attacks against Israel stopped. So again, just I would very much encourage you all that are interested to get this book and read their conclusions and their methodology. It's very fascinating to, for them to say 95 to 98% of all known suicide attacks from 1980 to 2009 are not about Islamic fundamentalism, except that that could be a recruiting tool. They are more about resistance to a foreign occupation. Just one, one quick point. Explaining suicide bombing is not justifying it, so please hear us carefully yep. on this. When we try to explain and understand why this is happening, we are not in any way saying that it's okay. And the vast majority of Palestinians would say the same thing. Yes, you can watch the news and see eruptions where people are waving banners and chanting and cheering and affirming suicide bombing, but it's in our news right now too. You can, you can watch the news, you can watch, I won't name the, the networks, but you can watch the news and see Americans who are celebrating violence against other people in the streets in the same way that Palestinians have done. So we're not in any way trying to justify what happened. We're just simply trying to explain it and say there is a rationale. Warped though it may be, there is a rationale behind why people are resorting to blowing themselves up 
as a way of resisting occupation. We've got churches that have celebrated what happened in Orlando. God sent the shooter, was their phrase, right? So if people overseas, if all they pick up on their cable channels is that, that's the image they have of what Americans are like. It's the same thing here. There are no single stories. There are no stories that are completely devoid of nuance. That all, the stories that depict only one side to a person or an event are by definition incomplete. Not necessarily untrue, but they are incomplete. And I suspect we ought to extend that same grace to the Arabs and the Muslims and the others that we feel somewhat hostile toward in the same way that we hope they'll extend that grace to us. We are out of time. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time for the Bible.